What's up, guys? This is PC, and this is your backstage pass to the Green Room Podcast Series. What's up, guys? Hey, this is PC. Welcome to the Green Room Podcast Series. I am so, so, so excited to bring to you our guest today, Tess Charneau, who is an educator at the International School of Luxembourg. Tess, how you doing today? I'm doing well, but it's hot, hot, hot. It's 35 degrees here in Luxembourg, and we are spending most of our time in between the paddling pool and the air conditioning unit. I love it. See, there you go. And so it's weird for me because we just moved a year ago from... Tennessee, which is in the southern part of the United States, into Minnesota, which is in the northern part of the United States, and just the temperature difference, um, because back home in Tennessee, it's so hot and it's so humid, whereas here, you know, it's August, and you go outside in the evening to take a walk, and you almost have to put like a lightweight coat on, and so, you know, it, it's that, that temperature shock there, that climate shock there. Talk a little bit about, I had the opportunity to meet you when I came over to Europe um, just a little bit over a year ago and was just fascinated by your energy and your passion and your enthusiasm for education. Talk about your background, your history in education and how you got to this point where you are today. Oh, thank you, PC. I mean, for me, I've had a bit of a weird background. I've been to nine schools, which is quite unusual for um, a student in, in the UK. And I've been to a mixture of um, very kind of Steiner type schools where you choose your educational path to boarding schools to, you know, uh, more open colleges. So I've, I've done pretty much every type of education you can have in my own background. And I think that that's made me um, very aware of the differences kids have when they come into a classroom, be it socioeconomic status, be it their um, learning status, be it where they come from culturally, their identity that they have. Um, and I think that it's, it's probably that background that made me want to teach. I had, sadly, you know, I, I've often seen that question, can you remember a great teacher? And considering I've been to nine schools, I have to really, really kind of rake my mind. And that's, that makes it, it makes me feel really sad because to me, this is a profession where every kid should remember at least one teacher that goes, yeah, that teacher blew my mind. That's the reason I study science. That's the reason why I wanted to become a writer. You know, it's that teacher. And I really wanted to be that person for kids. I really wanted to... My secret mission in life, and many of my um, older students will tell you that is to convert students from the arts, and I'm sorry all my colleagues in the arts and English and languages, but it's to steal them away from a preconceived idea of their future career and get them to study something in science because um, then they realize that they can, especially girls. Um, I'm very, very dedicated to pursuing different actions in supporting girls in STEM. Um, I work with some amazing NGOs that I've been lucky enough to um, do some outreach work in supporting. One of them is Greenlight for Girls out there. Hello to you. Um, and I think that so many girls have this belief still, still in 2020, that actually science isn't really for them, you know, and they may well be 11 or 12 years old and they've, they've already decided. And I think, like, how did that happen? 
at what point did they go, yeah, science isn't for me. So I wanted to be a science teacher that rocks blue hair and big shoes and I wear multicolored glasses and, you know, I want the girls to see and everyone to see that you can be weird, you can be odd, you can be fun, you can be kooky and you can do science and you don't have to be a stereotype. You don't have to be a preconceived idea of who a scientist is. So I think that that amalgamation of my backgrounds and my passion has made me the type of educator that I am now. I'd love to think that I am, oh, captain, my captain, you know, in my, in my ideal world, I think Robin Williams, I would, I just think he's amazing. Um, but I just want to be a teacher who kids go, yeah, that teacher believes in me. You know, no matter what I do, that teacher believes in me. And that's what I hope I am as an educator today. I've, taught myself in state systems in um, various different areas of the UK. Most are more deprived. I tend to gravitate towards more deprived areas, which is interesting that I've ended up in an international fee-paying school. You know, it, it, it juxtaposes my philosophy of education being free for all and equally accessible. Um, it just happens to be the way the cards fell right now. Um, but I hope that I can still bring into that um, current school situation the fact that every kid deserves the best quality education that you can give them. And that comes down to us as educators. You know, I think a lot of people will blame the kids. It's the kids today. It's their fault. Kids today, you know, they're not the same as they used to be. They didn't just sit down and learn. But it's not. It, it's us, the educators. It's our responsibility to make that education an experience that those kids want to go out and grab. So I'm sorry, I waffled on. I got overexcited as I predicted I would do. So no, hopefully I've answered some of your question. No, I love it. I love it. And so when did you know, at what point in your life did you know, I want to be a teacher? And then the second part of that is, when did you know you wanted to be a science teacher? Okay, that's really good questions. I knew I wanted to be a teacher most of my life, but my poor siblings, my younger sister and my younger brother got taught a lot. You know, when we had the mini whiteboard out or mini blackboard as it was then with the chalk and I would kind of educate them on things. And, um, you know, I was a big fan of bugs and beetles and worms and spiders and I quite liked them all and wanted, I wasn't, I wasn't like your classic, I want to take things apart and see how it works. And again, that might be the the stereotyping that happened to me because of course it does, you know, my own experiences didn't lead me to want to take things apart. Um, perhaps they would if I'd done it different now, but I wanted to know how animals worked and humans worked and how they interact. And, you know, I still get fascinated by plants. You know, I just like, how is it that it's green and that it's photosynthesizing and it's making its own food? Like that to me is mind-blowingly awesome, especially when you play into it. That actually that's got physics, it's got wavelengths, it's got chemistry, it's got electrons moving up and down electron energy levels. And then you think that's happening in that little green plant that's sitting in your living room or sitting outside the grass that you never think of. It's just there and it's just doing its stuff, but it's got all these amazing processes going on. So I think that when I started to wonder and question, I have always been a but why person. And I got really quite distressed at school when I had many teachers who said, it just is, that's the way it is. That's what you got to learn, learn it, write it down. And I would always put, but why is it like that? And I think that's probably why I ended up being science. I love English with a passion. I love literature. I studied as well. 
um, history, and um, I love theatre. Believe it or not, I can be quite dramatic, and I have done lots of theatre stuff as well, and I did consider it, but the, the question, but why, permeates through everything I see and I do, and I still have that amazing magical curiosity and wonder that I had when I was a small child, when I'm looking at the spider and it's making its web. And I think that's probably why science became the area that I wanted, biology specifically, I'm a biochemist, but biology specifically, I wanted to understand how all of these things fit together in the world that we live in. And, and I still do, and I still don't have all the answers. And I love it when my students challenge me and I have to go and find out some more. I think it's so powerful what you just said there about losing your sense of wonder because as kids, especially as young kids, they're always asking why, 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 you know, and as a parent, you're like, Oh my gosh, if I hear why one more time, <laughs> but over time as they grow up, they kind of tend to shy away from that. I guess because we almost try to fit them into these boxes for lack of a better phrase or whatever. How do we help our kids to maintain that sense of wonder? I, do you know, I think that's such a good question. And I think part of it, again, is the responsibility of the teacher in the room. And I think that's hard as adults, because especially if, if you've lost your why, you've lost your, the world is awesome moment, you know, and it is, and it, it's so easy to lose that and just get stuck in the pathway of day-to-day -day life and forget to go and look at the fact that the grass is green and forget to look at the spider making its web. And, you know, I'm trying to learn a bit more about mindfulness myself because I am quite a fast paced person. And when you bring back that wonder and you stop and you reflect, it allows you to actually open the eyes of others, I think, to allow them to see it as well. And I also think that we shouldn't be afraid to see the world through our students' eyes. I think it's very easy as an adult. Uh, if you haven't read Roald Dahl, everyone, you should. And in the world of Matilda, uh, Miss Trunchbull says, I'm big, you're small, I'm right, you're wrong. And I think it's very easy in the adult world to think that the viewpoint and the perspective of young people isn't important or it's not as good as our own. And I try regularly to see the world through my students' eyes and be that sometimes it's really harrowing and hard because some of them have had you know, very difficult experiences, but it helps us as educators to support them through difficult times, but also to reignite the wonder. When they see something and you see that eureka moment and you see them having that spark, that ignition, that passion starting off and you kindle it, you're the person who kindles it. I think that you can, as an educator, remind yourself and then that's what helps them. But it is, such a loss when kids stop asking why and I think that if we allow that in our classrooms we've done those children the biggest disservice and I always think when I have kids tell me that science is boring I just think that to me is a travesty because even though I don't know all the answers and oh, oh my goodness I don't know any of the answers really I love the fact that I don't know any of the answers and it's exciting to wonder about them and to think about them and to query them. If a student or a child thinks that science is boring, that's on us. That is on us as adults, as educators, as the media outlet and portraying science as a world that's not accessible to young people and that is, um, you know, sometimes 
heavily criticized in the media that's on us and kids should have that wonder about all of their life but you know to my mind particularly science and i hope that there's enough people out there who were trying to reignite it get them young that's what i say turn them for young sure. <laughs> for sure for sure you said two things there that I want to go back to. And let's start with the first one about mindfulness and taking the time to stop and watch the spider spin its web. Right. And I don't know specifics and you can fill us in here a little bit on European lifestyle, but I know in America, it's almost a sense of pride or a badge of honor, the harder you're working and, and the more, the busier you are, right. I've got to go here and I've got to do this and I've got this and you know, da 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 da. And the, the major fallback is the major, you know, thing that people want to say is, I don't have time. Does that relate to Europe? And then the second part of that question is, how do I make sure that I build in some time to be mindful of the world around me? I think it definitely relates to Europe. I think that, I do think if you live in the highlands of Scotland, perhaps you're able to be a bit more mindful because there is just a slower paced life there. But I think most European cities would be the same as you've described there in the US. And it is that badge of honor. I didn't have a lunch break today. I worked through lunch. You know, I got here at 7.45. Well, I got here at 7.30, you know, and I didn't see my kids today because I stayed on at work. And I see people feel worried about leaving work to go and collect their children because are they being seen as not working hard enough? And actually, I think, spending time with our kids and spending time with our students and spending time with our nieces and nephews and our grandchildren is what reminds us of the wonder. And it's such an important thing. And if COVID-19 has been a very, very difficult time and it continues to be so, but if it's taught me anything, and I, I know many of the people I've spoken to, it's how important it is to stop and spend time with your family and reflect on what it is that that you're gonna love and mike smith i know a big renaissance man um he mentioned like his catchphrase it, do you want is it i think it's legacy or likes i might get that the wrong way wrong way around or um legacy versus likes but i think the world is like we're posting our, our our lunch on social media, but we're not spending time helping our kid do their homework. And my kids are really on it. And if I'm on my phone and I'm just flicking through something like Facebook, my youngest particularly will say, mommy, that is enough on your phone. Get off your phone. I want to play a game of cards or let's go in the paddling pool. And it kind of is a, it's a dagger to the heart really. Cause you go, Oh my God, did I honestly just sit there and think that, my time was better spent flicking through someone else's portraits of their lunch than spending time with my children. And I think that's, that's what COVID-19 has taught a lot of people, myself included, that we have to stop and think about what's important to us. And people are being, people have died and people are being lost every day. And I've had friends who've lost relatives and the thing that they're saying is, I wish I'd had one more day. I wish I'd said that one more thing. And this is our chance to take that back. I think education is going to look really different. I think the workplace is going to look different. More people than ever before are working from home. And the world is still turning. People are still functioning. So, you know, this, 
this suggests that actually we can work in a different way and it's not a competition if you get the work done you get it done it, it shouldn't have to be in a set number of hours i mean i think if you think back to agricultural um and farming communities hundreds of years ago it wasn't you didn't have to stay out on the tractor from eight till six you stayed out until you'd clean you'd got the field in you know, you, there was no one sitting there by the gate going, well, I can't clock out yet because, you know, people in the other fields, they might be looking at me. When you've got the job done, you go home, you spend the evening with your family and, and you spend it around the table, eating good food and having good conversation. And I think that is what I hope we can all come back to and remember that family and friends and the people we love around us are so important. I, I lost a friend last week. Um, and it was really, really hard. And she was like one of my mentors when I first started teaching. She was one of the people who made me believe that I could be, I could maybe be a good science teacher. I had a lot of self-doubt and I still do. But this one wonderful woman ripped up my CV <laughs> because I was applying for a job. And she said, don't be so ridiculous. You have not said anything that you do here. You've said maybe I could quite possibly be and perhaps and... And she gave me an unconditional support that I had not experienced before. And now I'm thinking back, when was the last time I spoke to her before she died? When was the last time I told her how much I appreciated that? And it really hit me surprisingly hard, actually. And I just, I wanna tell all the people out there who I love, I love you. Um, but it's a reminder and if as i said covid19 is teaching us a whole number of different things and one is we're not invincible the virus is stronger than the human every day of the week you know and that's biology for you um but also our family around us and the students that we care about and the friends that we have they are the people that we should keep close in our heart sorry again another waffle there i just went off on it again <laughs> sorry. no it's great i love it i love it it's just powerful powerful stuff that you're saying there let's talk about covid and let's talk about how it's impacting um your school and schools in europe uh here in the states some schools have started to go back and are getting ready to go back and they've got basically three different models they're either going back full physical or they're going back hybrid or they're going back in a complete distance learning environment. What is the situation there for you and your school in Luxembourg? And what are the, what are the concerns? What's the status there for you? So right now we are still in the exact same situation. We still have the three models. Um, because we're an international school, it, we actually go back considerably earlier than the local schools. And so I think the decision is gonna have to be made more locally by the school. Um, prior to return as opposed to a little bit later in September when it will be made by the education minister and the education secretary for the country. And so it's slightly different here, which means uh, it makes it slightly more difficult in that you don't know, you know, when some, when a, when a query is made or when a suggestion is made by a government minister, well, that's easy. You follow it. But when you've got a school trying to make decisions for itself in a situation where the unknown is everywhere, it makes it more difficult, but we will be following one of those three models, absolutely. Um, and I think most of Europe will probably be the same. Um, I know that some schools in the UK, I've just come back from spending time, quality time with my family who I miss hugely. Um, and I know some schools are going back already and preparing to go back. And um, 
Boris Johnson went into an empty school this week just to show that it was okay, which I thought was a great move, except there were no kids and no risks. So, you know, I don't know how many people believed it, but I think that there's, um, there's a huge fear because when, before the summer term, you know, from March when lockdown happened here until June, July, people were like, okay, well, that's how it's going to be for now. That's how, that's what we're going to deal with now. But the question now is, is this what things are going to look like from now on? You know, it's not just for now, it's from now on. And will we be having a hybrid model where you have half the kids in front of you and half of them virtually or it's especially difficult for a subject like science. Um, particularly, I teach mostly the older kids. So with younger students, I think there are wonderful experiments you can do in the home. So for all you listeners, there are great experiments you can do in the home. Um, I'll come up with some more for you for another time. But for the older students, it's very difficult to do the practical aspects of science virtually. And especially in a qualification, we do the International Baccalaureate Diploma. And it requires students to have um, individually um, externally assessed pieces of work and internally assessed pieces of work. But if we can't do anything practically, and if all the kids are learning virtually, it makes that aspect really, really difficult. But also I think one of the elements of science that keeps that, um, that awesome moment, that wonder that we were talking about earlier, is doing things practically doing things hands-on where you don't know what the outcome is going to be as opposed to theoretically where I just, I say book learning. I don't mean that because I, I don't do book learning. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not, that's not my classroom, but um, I think the practical element of science being lost is my biggest fear because I think a lot of teachers, it's not that they don't like it, but many teachers are afraid of it, especially if they are not trained in science and ended up in the field of science through uh, many reasons. And I know that happens a lot in school systems where you just don't have enough teachers. And I think that those teachers who, who don't have that background might actually think that I don't have to do the practical. Great. Phew. Okay. That was the bit I was scared about. And I think when science becomes just a theoretical entity, it loses that sense of wonder and amazement that is what keeps students engaged and can help them build their passion. So that for me is a big fear about the return to school is what will be lost through the sciences. I think in so many other ways, um, and different learners I have found are responding really differently. And I mean, I can take my own two children. I don't feel worried about naming them. My two children are very, very different. and. One of them really struggled virtually. You know, she wanted her friends there. She wanted her teacher to tell her what to do. She likes the routine. She likes the classroom situation of knowing, you know, which lesson comes first, what's after lunch, what's, you know. And she, I mean, she was okay and, and we got through it. And being a teacher, my poor two children had a very detailed schedule for every day. Um, but my younger child loved the freedom. Like, when she's decided for all of you out there who know a lot about chameleons please help and come back to me she's decided she wants a chameleon and so she created a 46 page powerpoint researching reptiles and then wrote a persuasive text on why she should be allowed a chameleon so for her the freedom to do her own learning in her own way and we talked about persuasive language and all the things she would have done in a classroom but under a different guise 
we talked about all of those normal learning things and she loved that freedom. When we did, you know, I call it physical education, whatever, she decided she wanted to learn rollerblading. So she got rollerblades and has taught herself. And she's out there and, and doing turns in the street. Whereas my, my other daughter wanted to have like a P lesson where, you know, it was ball games today or it was something. And she struggles with the freedom. So I think all of our learners are experiencing this virtual hybrid um, schooling in a very different way. And I think as educators, we have to be very aware of that and in tune with that. I think we have to be very cognizant that we will have some kids who cannot cope virtually. And it's, it's our responsibility to provide them with mechanisms and support systems to allow them to continue learning and to continue love learning. Because if they don't love learning and we allow this experience, this 2020 COVID-19 experience, if we allow that to extinguish the flame of loving learning, that's it, it's gone. It's so hard to get back when it's gone. So for all of those students who struggle and for all of those students who maybe have um, special educational needs or um, specific learning difficulties, we have to find a way to help them if we are in a hybrid system. We have to find a way to help them if we're in a virtual system because otherwise they could be lost. And that's a whole generation of great minds and great wonders who will be lost to us. And so I think that that's something that I'm always really conscious of. Um, when I'm thinking about my virtual classroom, my hybrid classroom is how do I make sure I've still got everyone with me? So true and, and so powerful. And it sounds like you're going to be getting a chameleon here pretty soon. <laughs> I think so. I think we will be. Yeah. That is so like Brooks would do the, like that is you're describing that to me, the, the PowerPoint presentation and the persuasive writing. And like, that is so Brooks when he wants something and he'll make out the pros and the cons and he puts together a little presentation of this is why we should get it. And these are the negatives, but here's what I'm going to do to help with those negatives. And I'm just like dying inside when you're explaining that to me, that, that is so cool. Let's talk about your school the International School of Luxembourg, and for listeners who maybe aren't aware or familiar with international schools, talk about like the makeup of the school. What makes an international school different from, say, just a, 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 a general public school? So it's a really interesting question, especially, as I said, I, I've had many different scholastic experiences myself, and I've taught in a lot of state system UK schools. Um, so for me, it was new as well. And I was excited to, to be part of this journey. And what, what amazes me every day is walking down the corridor and hearing the myriad of languages that are spoken between students. It blows my mind when you can hear a conversation that goes from Italian to French to German to Luxembourgish to English and back again with one group of students talking to each other. And and that has been so eye-opening for me because I, I always kind of had languages in separate boxes, you know, that if you, if you speak French, you speak French. If you speak Italian, you speak Italian. But to hear the interplay and the interchange within languages and, and sometimes like some emotions are better in Italian. And, you know, if you want to describe something, then do it in German. And I, I probably stereotype those two countries really badly there. I do apologize for your listeners. Um, but it's amazing to listen to how the kids kind of choose which language is appropriate for what they're trying to say. And that for me was one of my first noticeable things. 
I mean, we have probably between 40 and 50 nationalities at our school, and that is students, and the staff body is probably pretty similar. Um, we were an American school in Luxembourg, and so there is still an ethos of an American system here as well, and there are still many teachers who come from America and teach within Europe, and more often than not teach in the American schools. And so our school was an American school and actually started off with uh, DuPont. So DuPont, the chemical company, um, the school started off as a small, very, very small school for the expat community children of DuPont workers from the US. And, you know, then it became the American school and then it became the international American school and then it's the international school. And so it's gone through um, a whole series of face changes over the last kind of 55 to 58 years. That's kind of how long the school has been going. And it's gone from having like six students to having like 1600 students from K through 12. So it's a very different place than it was um, when it first started. But um, the international body of it is what excites me. And it's not actually in the classroom that you get to experience it. It's the extra things. It's, um, so Nisus is the Northern European international something of schools. It's like the sports, intercalated sports across the different schools. And the best place for kids to learn about each other's cultures, and I've learned this in the last year doing under 12 volleyball coaching, is sitting on the coach, listening to them drive from Luxembourg to Hamburg, like an eight hour coach journey. They think nothing of it. Like it's just another coach journey and we're going to go and play one hour of volleyball at the end of it, you know, but that's where so much of the cultural identity and cultural learning is done is in these extracurriculars. It's when they are um, in the clubs at lunchtime and they're learning about each other rather than learning about their academic subjects. And, and that to me has been really, really wonderful. Um, another eye-opening thing, and I think this again comes of being part of an American system, is I never heard of the words uh, varsity and, and JV. And, and I was like, well, what does that mean? What is varsity? Like, how, how is that different? And um, that's been really really interesting and all of the sports are american-based sports like i do field hockey um that's what i learned um but you have to call it field hockey when you're here you can't just call it hockey because all the ice hockey players from north america are like no no we're hockey <laughs> you're field hockey so i'm learning things like netball just doesn't exist netball is not a, a it's not a thing in international schools um, and it's not volleyball and it's not basketball. It's a different game for all of you people out there. It is a different game. Um, and so sport is really different. But actually, the thing, that, the thing that's really struck home for me is kids are kids are kids. Wherever you teach in the world, wherever their socioeconomic status, wherever they come from, they want you to love them. They want to please you. And they are so happy if you can demonstrate through your teaching that you're passionate about educating and you're passionate about them. And that's the kind of the ring through for me is it doesn't matter where I teach in the world. I was worried about teaching in an international school because you know, my background is very, very different. It's state system UK in more deprived areas. But actually when I arrived here, the kids just wanted to be loved and they just wanted to please me and they just wanted to learn. And that's what they're like wherever. And I think that that's helped me negotiate my transition from one type of education system into another.
So you say you've got 40 to 50 different cultures there represented on that campus. What do you all do as educators, as leaders, to create an inclusive environment there to where regardless of which one of those backgrounds they come from, they all feel like they belong there on your campus? That's a, it's a really important question that you've asked there. And it's something that is in its embryonic stages, really. It's not something that's kind of really embodied, I would say, yet at the school, but a diversity committee was started last year, um, of which I'm proud to be part of. And we are looking at the different cultural identities, the different, but also not just cultural identities, you know, the LGBTQ community within the school and looking at all of our communities and how they can be equally represented. Um, we're doing a lot of work on, um, obviously with the Black Lives Matter being such an important part of the last few months alongside, you know, uh, two really key events I think of 2020 are going to be Black Lives Matter and COVID. And I think they have changed a generation and they will ch continue to change this generation. And I think um, reading is really important. And I think that actually talking is really important. So through having conversations with our staff and with our students and doing things like, um, like podcasts almost, you know, where the, the staff body, the student body get to hear the stories of the people who they're with on a daily basis, because it's very easy, as I've said before, to stereotype, to typecast. And I know people will have an opinion of me, but they know nothing about where am I come from or my background. And it's only when you can hear the story, can you, understand the the steps that someone has taken to get to where they are now and i think that we have amazing staff at the school who have had so many different diverse journeys and so many different um experiences that these are the stories we need to be listening to we've had a great group in the last year we have a ted ed group at the school which we're really lucky to have and they have done some amazing um, student-led speaking. Um, but what they've done in the last few months is they've actually led some, uh, I think they're, they're like the TED-Ed seminar things where you, know, you have the panel, kind of like we had, the panel speakers, and then everyone can come in and listen. And we've had some amazing TED-Ed-led speakers this year from our students. And these were orchestrated by the kids and this shows that it is something that's really important. And I think when a movement is started by the young, it will continue. When it's paid lip service by the older generation who think they should do it because you should, it won't stick, it won't stay. And the, the things that we've had in the last um, kind of five months have been organized and started through our student body. So I'm hoping that these are gonna make a real difference. Um, we have an alliance group, which is an LGBTQ club that we've started in the last year as well. We have student leadership and autonomy there. Through doing Amnesty International, which is a, um, a club that I'm hugely passionate about and I've led at the school for a number of years, I think a lot of our students, especially when you grow up in a relatively um, bubble-like environment and relatively privileged, I think a lot of our, our kids will acknowledge they're relatively privileged. Um, you forget that the rest of the world has suffering and through doing things like Amnesty International, uh, we have raised awareness and this has sought students to start questioning their own experiences and to start questioning what they read in the media and to start 
looking at the people who are around them and actually caring that they might have a story too. And I think that's a big thing. Um, one of the groups I work with uh, in Luxembourg is called Corporation Nord Sud, which is Corporation North South. And it's a group that works in Uganda and Kenya. And we've done some work with them this year as well. And um, one of the things that we've had an experience with them, which has been really great, is through the Corporation North South, they are working with refugee children. And we were, it was so unfortunate, it was just as lockdown occurred. Um, we had a refugee football tournament with students from all of the schools on our large campus, because there are actually four schools on the campus here, um, as well as from the refugee community, all coming together just for the love of sport, just to play football. And whilst football in the UK and internationally, you know, I think when, when you think of big clubs, I don't think it's the same. When you think of grassroots football, anyone can kick a ball to each other and it brings communities together. And I think that that to me through sport and through stories and through communicating is how our school and many schools around the globe are going to be able to continue to integrate all the communities that um, embody them. And it's all those communities that make us who we are and what we are. Without them, a school is nothing. It has no identity. Those people are the identity. So we should celebrate them. I love that. And I love what you said about sports, being able to bring people together. It, it makes me think about a trip that we took uh, one year for Christmas. We took Brooks to New York City. And that's one of my favorite cities to visit. There's just so much going on. And it's just it fascinates my mind, but there's so many different cultures. There's so many different religions. There's so many different language, languages that are spoken, but regardless of where people are from and whether they can speak English or this or that or whatever, the universal language is a smile. Yeah. Everybody understands a smile and a wave and a high. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I always say like, we just, people need to smile more, you know, yeah. um, you are working as if you don't have enough going on. You're also working on your doctoral degree. And so yeah. talk about what you're focusing in on there with your doctoral degree and what you hope to accomplish with that. So um, I am, yes, trying very hard to complete my doctoral degree. Um, not only because I want to be Dr. TC, yeah, because you obviously you're PC, can't take that, Dr. TC. Um, I, first of all, did my master's because in the international setting, um, there are different pay brackets, which I didn't realize. And I was quite put out by this, that actually it's not about your experience as an educator or what you actually do in the classroom. It's about the letters after your name um, that put you into a different pay bracket. So I was actually, um, it, put out is probably mild. I was infuriated and pretty cross, um, but I worked really hard to do my master's part-time whilst I was um, teaching. And I did that in international education because I thought I hadn't had an international background. So it would be a good kind of learning point for me. And I do love learning and I learned so much doing it. And when I got to the end, I was like, okay, what now? What shall I do now? And my husband was like, stop. Uh, no, no, this is just an open door for me now. So I decided to carry on and do my um, doctoral degree because I loved it. I loved the learning. I loved learning about how to be a better educator, about how to make education more holistic, about, like I always thought policy was something for administration, you know, and, and it's not something I needed to understand. But when I did a policy and practice unit within my doctoral degree, I realized the implications that understanding policy has on your own practice. 
you need to understand policy in order to make your own practice better, I think, because then you know where things are coming from and why uh, the background to particular decisions. And then you know how to challenge them as well. And I think only when you understand policy can you challenge policy. So for me, um, I started off by just a sheer love of learning. And over my first couple of units, I became more and more and more um, engaged with the topic of student well-being. And student well-being has been my underlying cause for going into teaching in the first place. You know, I never, much as I love photosynthesis, don't get me wrong, I never went into teaching because I was like, I have to share the world of photosynthesis with people. I have to. That wasn't why I came into teaching. It was very much because I wanted to support young people in finding and carving their path out in the world. And so well-being has actually been central to everything that I've ever done in the 20 odd years I've been in as an educator. But I've seen more and more in the last 10 years, the impact that education and societal pressure is having on our students. And I wanted to think more about what I could do as an individual educator, but what more we as educators could do to support students who are going through this. So my focus onto student well-being, um, it, it kind of became very, very quick. And I, I just started doing so much reading and listening to podcasts. And um, my father's a psychiatrist and, and studies, um, he reads lots of neuroscience things in his spare time. So I started asking him lots of questions um, about kind of depression and anxiety and well-being and the connection between them and how um, the role that relationships play in the classroom has always been very central to me. But it's the realization that it's not just central, it's essential um, to actually supporting students' well-being. Without that belief in the person who's in the room with them, without that sense of they have an adult who they can make connections with, because not everyone has that at home, and that's a terrible thing to acknowledge, but it's true. And sometimes the teacher in the classroom is that pinnacle adult that can save a child's life. And those relationships, I've started to understand them more. They've always been important to me, but now I understand them more. And my final kind of thesis right now that I'm working on is the impact of the IB diploma program on student well-being. And I'm looking at um, aspects of anxiety brought on by exams. So looking at exam stress particularly. And I'm also trying to look at, do different students exhibit different resilience strategies? So I'm looking at students who, um, you know, would be classed as across the board, they find most subjects relatively easy, they're, they're well, I mean, well-rounded is definitely the wrong thing to say, and I don't mean it like that, but they're academically gifted in most areas. And um, what I've been trying to investigate is see, do they have resilient strategies underplaying their, their coping mechanisms that actually, as educators, we can learn from and tap into and support all students by teaching them. So I'm trying to look at, do different cohorts of students exhibit different resilience and coping mechanisms to deal with the stress and anxiety that's brought on by a program as rigorous as the IB diploma program. And it's been really interesting. And as I've been spending far too many numerous hours to count typing up transcripts, 
um, there are certain themes and threads that are starting to really come through. And one of them that's been really interesting to me is about the international nature of a school and how transient relationships can make it difficult to actually deal with stress and anxiety. And again, this comes back to my own kind of nine schools experience. It's probably one of the reasons why I have been able to tap into this. And it was probably one of the reasons why it was something that I heard through the comments that were made. Um, it, the, the role that relationships play, um, both in the home, if, if you're lucky enough to have them, and in the school, where we can actually support students through this really difficult time. And resilient strategies aren't just good ones. You know, we hear the word resilient strategies and we think positive. We think mindfulness, we think using sport as a mechanism to de-stress, but resilient strategies include drinking and smoking and, you know, using drugs and self-harm. And all of those are resilient strategies. Some are healthier than others, to be fair, but they're all resilient strategies. And one of the things that I feel is such a responsibility of a school is to have somewhere inbuilt within its structure the education of resilient strategies. We are not just a place where children should learn knowledge about photosynthesis. <laughs> you can tell I love it, but we're not just a place where children should say, yes, I read Emily Bronte, I learned about World War II. A school is a place where students should learn about A, how to be human, how to be kind, how to be, how to be civil, how to deal with the stresses and the difficulties that life will throw at them, because it will. There's no, there's no point in kidding and pretend that life will be rosy because it won't. Everyone will have something. Some, some children sadly will have to cope with more than others, but everyone has their own individual um, difficulties. And it's our responsibility as educators and you know, as schools as to teach young people how to deal with this. It's not something that is inbuilt. And the reason why we have so many adults now who struggle to be human, who've lost their awesome, who've lost their ability to be inspired and engaged. And as we talked about earlier, they've lost their why is because they're just getting through life on a day-to-day -day basis. And that that's their resilient strategy. Don't lift my head up above the parapet. Don't, you know, don't take too much notice because it'll hurt. Whereas if we can teach people how to make the most of every day, how to look for the beauty in what's surrounding us and how to find their strength. Everyone's got one, you know, and some people it's being a leader and some people it's art and some people it's just being inspired by spiders webs with drops on them and wanting to know how they are. But everyone has something, but we have to teach kids how to find that and how to believe in it and how to know that it's okay. If that's your thing, that is all good. And you are all the more wonderful for that being your thing. You know, so I feel really strongly about student well-being. I get kind of, um, I, I struggle and I, I kind of flip between being really angry and being really passionate about trying to make a difference. Um, and so I find it sometimes difficult to talk to because uh, talk about because I can't, I can't fathom how we can let kids fall through the net. I can't fathom why another kid died on Oxford Street two days ago in London being stabbed by other teenagers, stabbed with a machete on Oxford Street, you know? part of a gang and that's a resilient strategy that's what gangs are they are your coping strategy 
They allow you to deal with the horrors of the world around you. So our job as educators is to provide alternative ones where gangs aren't the only option, you know, where self-harm isn't the only option, where you can actually go, you know what, actually I've learned mindfulness at school or I have learned that being a mentor for a younger child who has autism is an amazing resilient strategy because I've learned that I'm good at helping another child. And all of those are strategies that I think, um, you know, we underplay them and we shouldn't, we should overplay them. We should, our life as educators is actually, almost the academics is almost irrelevant now. Kids are so good at learning everything from YouTube and from a textbook, you know. I could give my kids a biology textbook, but I have to make them human. So true. And that's something I always tell educators is if I can learn it from my phone, why do I need to teach it in the classroom, right? Like, why do I need to memorize here in the States? One of the things I can remember growing up, you have to memorize the abbreviations for all 50 states. Well, if I can look that up right here in the pocket of my, you know, my pants on my phone, right? Like, why do I need to memorize that? So it makes you question learning. Um, Tess, last question I want to ask you, and you've been kind of hitting around this this entire time, and I think I know where you're going to go with this, but I'm, I'm excited to hear you talk a little bit more about it. You've mentioned a couple of times the aspect of people losing their why. What is your why? Hmm. That's a really good question. My why is the fact that it is teaching and my family. I have two folds, you know, I have my personal why I suppose, which is my family. That is my personal why. It's, it's why on Saturday morning I get up <laughs> on Monday morning to Friday morning. My why is the kids I teach my poor husband. I have woken him up sometimes in the middle of a night to tell him a brilliant lesson idea. And he's like, are you kidding me? I do not need to know this at 2 a.m. Write it down. So I, I started putting like a, a notebook by my bed because sometimes I'd be dreaming of ways to teach something. Like I teach the structure of the cell through my students have to make pizzas and they have to kind of make pizzas of all the different organelles and they only get to eat the pizza if they can name and label the organelles. But my why is getting up every morning and going into school and seeing those faces and saying, right, how, how are we gonna make the world a better place today? What are we gonna do? How are we gonna help student X who's having a really tough time? How can I make their experience today a better one? And you know, you, you mentioned earlier about smiling. I, I'm, I'm such a firm believer in kindness. Um, my family has a, ancient and my family's very weird the, the more we speak the lot the more we'll know this pc but we have a family crest which translates from latin as truth and kindness and you know what if i can live my life by those two words then i haven't done badly and kindness to me is so important when i walk down the corridor every student even if i've never taught them it's not hard to say good morning and how are you and open the door for them it's not hard to do that. And when we model what we expect from humans, it's easier for young people to learn. They only mirror what they see. And if all they see is people not opening the door for them and ignoring them, then that's what they'll mirror. If they see teachers walking down the corridors, good morning, how are you? Or isn't it some wonder, you know, how was the basketball game last night? Or care about them, ask them a question about themselves. And that is my why it's trying to make a difference to these kids i would love to say 
that if I get to a, a sad point where I have to have a funeral, which will happen at some point, I know, I hope there will be some kids there who remember me and say, she asked me how I was and she cared about me. And that was that teacher, you know, the mad one, the one who stood up on the table. He had, she had all the multicolored glasses. She was the one who believed in me. And that's my why. I want to believe in every one of those kids every single day and make them believe in themselves. And on the weekend, that's what I want to do for my own kids, but also during the week as well. Don't get me wrong. Um, but you know, it, it's, that's it. It's really simple. It's not a love of photosynthesis. Although for those of you out there who haven't looked into it enough, it is a cool topic, but it's a love of young people and a desire to help them find their pathway. That's it. Well, Tess, you know this already, but I just think that you are just unbelievable. I, I love your passion. I love your energy. I love who you are and what you're all about. And I just can't thank you enough for taking the time. Um, I, I know that getting ready for the school year and you got a million things going on with your family and all that good stuff as well. So I'm so appreciative of your time for not only for today, but of all the other projects that we've been working on that we'll continue to work on as well. And just thankful for your friendship and for all that you do for the world of education. Well, thank you, PC. And I can't wait to work on the next project. Being, being able to share your love of education can only be a good thing. If it can bring one more educator into the world who says, actually, yeah, maybe that's a career for me too, then that's a good thing too. So thank you for your time. Thank you for inviting me. I've been very excited. Hopefully you won't have to edit out too much of me waffling on, but um, it's been wonderful. Thank you. No, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Guys, you've been listening to the Green Room podcast series. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoy the podcast, if you do me a huge favor, if you would rate it, subscribe to it, and then share it with a fellow educator that you think might enjoy it as well. Chase your dreams, kids. Mm -hmm.